Hello, guys. Welcome back to Ragnarsson Invest podcast. Our today's guest is Mandeep uh, Saur from uh, founder of Bendy. Bendy specializes in improving sustainability in the fashion industry and we'll dig deeper into the impact they create in a moment. But uh, first, uh, the foremost, uh, Mandeep, really, really great to have you here. Thank you for, for coming, for joining us and uh, agreeing to have this conversation. Yeah, look, it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, yeah, I've been listening to your podcast, so yeah, great to be here. <laughs> really good to hear that. Um, I'm happy that we are providing some content that people appreciate. Um, obviously, we had a couple of conversations before, so we know your story a little bit. And I think your story is really worth uh, uh, telling uh, to the wider audience, because as a founder, every person needs to adapt to the feedback, need to iterate the idea. And you're a really big expert in that. Um, I think it took you a little um, a little time to get to the point where you feel really confident about your uh, product market fit, like this imaginary um, holy grail. And I can imagine that having all that experience already, there are a couple of things that surprised you in the process. Uh, so maybe can you share what were the things that you, you think worth knowing before for someone before starting the process? Um, I think one thing that, you know, founders get told again and again, um, but certainly was a surprise to us was that our first idea wasn't amazing. Um, that it wasn't like this, we, we, we sort of thought about it. We started spending all of our free time on it. It was, you know, soon our side hustle became our main hustle. We quit our jobs and really focused on it. We thought, this is it. This is going to be amazing. Once we share this with the world, it's, it's going to be great. We're going to go fundraise. We're going to be big. Uh, and I think that's, it's, it's common. I hear about it again and again, but until you experience it yourself, you, you really can't explain. So, I mean, we, to kind of put some meat on that a little bit, when we started off, we wanted consumers, like we're, we're consumers ourselves. And we thought, okay, wouldn't it be great if we lived in this world where we would know the impact of all the things that we were buying and specifically for clothing, the impacts of the clothing sector, the apparel um, and sort of textile sector is really huge, both in terms of the environmental impacts, but also um, how people and the kind of social impacts related to that. So we're like, well, if I bought this t-shirt and I could see, oh, it, you know, use this much carbon or maybe it used like less um, water than the average, or um, I knew that these were the people that made it and wouldn't that be great? Um, we're like, yeah, great. Let's, let's do that. So we, we built this, um, we actually won some innovation funding for that right at the beginning from uh, the UK government during, it was during lockdown, right? So you had nothing else to take your focus from it. And we just worked. That's all we did. And we focused all of our energies into this. And we built, um, it was a consumer facing Chrome extension that sh showed effectively like ratings of uh, products. There were so many things wrong with <laughs> I don't even know where to begin now. Um, we just learned so much stuff. We were like, oh, we, we can make something that works. That's great. So we can build tech products. Amazing. That was the one thing that we thought we couldn't do, by the way. Um, everything else we thought we had it, but we actually, that wasn't so good. We didn't know how to take it to market. We didn't know anything about marketing. Um, we picked a sector of the market that actually wasn't the right one. So we 
picked children's clothing, but neither of us, neither myself nor my co-founder were parents. And it turns out actually having that kind of insight can be really, really helpful. So suddenly we found ourselves kind of going on like mom's net groups, trying to promote this product that we'd built and, and talk to customers. I mean, we talked to lots of customers. We talked to about a hundred parents, uh, mostly women, I'd say, but also, also some uh, men, some fathers in there. And they said some great stuff. They were like, oh yeah, that'd be amazing if I could do this for my kid, then I would know. And I would like to do, I'd like to buy the lower impact product. We built this sophisticated recommender tool um, so that if you had like, you know, one baby grow that maybe um, we didn't have any information on, but another one that we could say, oh, on average, this is like a lower impact product, especially from the environmental sense um, perspective. It's hard to say something on um, the social perspective without having the real data. Another, another big problem, no real data. <laughs> Um, and, uh, so we built this like recommender that you, uh, could search for a product and we would show you a recommendation of a sort of similarly priced, similar looking, same sort of color, uh, that was supposedly better impact, but people just didn't really make those switches. Most people have brand preferences, they stick to them. And I think we can all, um, kind of, we can all agree that we have good thoughts about the world that we want to do something. I don't know. I, I want to get up and go to the gym at six o'clock, but you know, that doesn't always happen. I want to do X, Y, Z. Like we want to act in a particular way, but we don't always act that way. And all of the customer research that we showed basically confirmed this, not necessarily, I mean, people want to do the right thing. Even if you give them information, they don't necessarily change their actions. So we put that whole idea um to bed we just realized we couldn't make money out of it we couldn't scale it um the data that we had wasn't um really reliable i mean we've now seen that using average data has, has gotten a lot of companies into trouble um things like h&m using hig data the danish government have kind of just i think they've just fined them like 2.5 mil corona for using average um averages so you know if this is Cotton, can I say that this is on average lower carbon than some synthetic material? Well, actually, you can't because if the cotton was um, processed into fabric at a factory that uses solar, then actually it could have a lower footprint. And even within cotton, you can have like a really big um, divider. So, yeah, we, we learned a, a lot of things. We spent... It was guts, blood and sweat and all of those things. But we had to, and, and we just, we also, we'd hired some really great people. We didn't know whether that would make sense going forward. I mean, it was one of the hardest things I think that we learned as early stage founders. Um, again, you know, you hear you, you should let people go, but it's hard. <laughs> in, in this first phase of building your business, what do you think was the most crucial learning? Uh, go to market earlier. Yeah. Find a way to test your product earlier. Uh, we spent five months, uh, five, six months almost until it was out in the market. Um, and even then, um, it wasn't enough of the market. Then, then it took us a little bit longer to really get enough people interested. We should have built a list in month one 
Um, we should have done, you know, done all sorts of other tests, I think, with something that was much simpler. We didn't need to build a recommender engine, let's say, for example, in stage one. It could, we, we just didn't capture MVP. It was a viable product, mm -hmm. maybe, but it wasn't minimum. But it's interesting that what you said is not that our hypothesis was too naive at the, at the beginning or just we had a very different view of the market than it, than it actually was. It, your solution is simply that this is the starting point could be as, as bad as, as you can imagine, but it's, it's the most important part is just to learn as quickly as possible that this is not the solution that the market wants. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Or simplifying it um, even a bit, a, bit, a bit more, like start talking to people first before you start building anything, <laughs> right? Basically, yes, yeah. Okay, uh, okay so which you have is much learning. more what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> so you learned that um, with your first phase. I can imagine you then started talking to people, trying to figure out what they really want, and what was the outcome. <laughs> so then we had this um, view that actually uh, we started speaking to, to kind of producers, so the brands themselves, and and instantly most accessible to us were, were smaller brands. So uh, we even knew some small brands previously. So we started speaking to them and they were like, oh yeah, we would love to be able to show some sort of metric. And in fact, we'd like to improve them over time. Um, we know that sharing the provenance of your products or effectively being able to communicate the sustainability of your product or even the journey of that to consumers is important. It's not important to all brands, but it's becoming more and more important. It's sort of, you know, I mean, if you read all the reports, it's like top three things that all company owners that, you know, care about right now. The reality of that, I don't know, but um, certainly we spoke to lots of small brands that wanted to be able to do this. So we built a a version of the original product. We used the tech a little bit um, and we created a way that brands could communicate their sustainability on their um, websites. And it would take data that they would then collect. Uh, there would be some sort of verification process uh, as much as could be done, because obviously there's no way to, there's no 100% verification, right? Uh, you are beholden to effect your, what your suppliers give you. The smaller you are as a brand, the less incentive there is for your supplier to go out of their way. I mean, we were talking to brands that were so small that sometimes they couldn't even get their products made because they wanted to make 200 products or 500 products. And that's, that's a really small number when you're talking about some of these huge suppliers um, around the world. I mean, it was not even like 0.1% of their like product output. So... In effect, you need, so then we went, we're kind of slowly going along this journey, right? We started off with the consumer. We're like, nope, that's not it. Okay, what's the next step? Let's start talking to small brands. And then, of course, where it is, is in the supply chain. So they're trying to communicate with their supply chain, trying to find out from their suppliers um, information about, you know, what kind of energy they're using, what's the waste look like, um, what are the chemical processes, what do they do with the waste product in terms of water or uh, materials? And if you're not going to pay them more, and if you're not going to like have a bigger production, then it's pretty hard to get that information. So 
Again, we hit this brick wall again. How do you communicate something to consumers when the brands can't get that information from the suppliers themselves? Also, we realized it was super manual, right? Um, you're collecting this data from suppliers and it all goes into a spreadsheet. It's stuck in a um, in your inbox. They forget to send you something. You email them again. And it's, it's, kind of, it's literally how um this this industry works it's not very digital you have people um you know working on a huge factory in bangladesh or china there's like a couple of laptops or a couple of people who sit on a laptop occasionally but you know their work is out on the factory floor or out in a a mill um or even as far down as like the farm level so they're they're more on their phone than they are on their laptop so there was a kind of a technology clash as well that we saw. So that was our second idea. <laughs> <laughs> we did that. Uh, we did that for a while. Certainly somebody wanted it, but was it possible, right? I think that that bit we found, no, it wasn't really possible. Okay, so the collection and the verification, that were the blockers, the big, big boulders on the way. Yeah, the incentives for suppliers mm -hmm. to share information with you was just not there for mm -hmm. really small brands. It was very hard. Mm -hmm. Unless the brand set up their supply chain with with these things in mind, mm -hmm. but even then, they're too small mm -hmm. to uh, drive kind of change in this market. And at that time, did you manage to apply the lesson, lessons learned from the first phase or it was still not so evident that this is how you should be doing things? Yeah, so we'd learned to speak to customers first. That was good. Good. And we didn't build anything until um, customers said, yes, oh, this is something we want and um, let's do kind of pilots together. So that was, we didn't put the cart before the horse in that sense because it doesn't, Sometimes in tech, it, it, it it's kind of a very strange thing. You build something that barely works, um, that's so minimal, that just gives somebody an idea of what it is. So we just built some prototypes, like did some stuff in Figma. We made some demos. We took that out to clients and they were like, oh, yeah, I really like it. Amazing. Please build me this and let's work on it. And then it's only when you get into the actual execution of that, that phase, that you realize there's some... Uh, challenges because the product works, people want it, but can you get all the pieces that you need in order to make it effective? So that was a, you know, problem number two or three, uh, another lesson learned. Okay. So t let's take those lessons and move forward to phase three. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think that we learn lessons quickly, but it doesn't feel that way. I mean, when you're, um, in our shoes, I think we're like, why did it take us so long to learn this? Um, because you commit to, you commit to doing something, you put resources behind it. And also I think, um, during both of those phases, we had a team, um, not, not a particularly big one, but like up to 10 people at one point. And, um, yeah, you have to make these decisions, when you're changing what your product does completely, uh, you have to question whether the team are the right people. Uh, and of course, sacrifices have to be made. And it, it, that was really tough, actually. 
So at that point, we let go of the team, which was super tough. And um, we took on a technical co-founder and we thought, okay, let's, let's talk to much, much bigger companies. And we've started doing that in the last six to eight months. Uh, and we've taken a similar approach. Don't, don't build too much until you've got some ticks. Um, and we've really like hit sales, I think, in a way that we had never done before. But now the incentives are much more aligned. If you're a huge provider, um, if you're a huge brand uh, in Europe, then you make up a significant share of your supplier's production. And so baking in commercial incentives to aligning environmental and social incentives, I think, is... Re it's a really important way and, and we hadn't thought about that as anything one of the things we were all about the impact we were like how do we change this how do we help companies do better but actually things are baked into you know how, how do we make money how, how do we become how do, how do we ensure that we can pay our teams how do we ensure that the company's growing and there's stability and frankly we should have thought about that for ourselves <laughs> I think as well we <laughs> We went out with impact first, but it's, it is impact, but it has to be aligned. Um, mm -hmm. And so now the companies we're working with can bake in commercial incentives as they're um, talking with their suppliers. And so that's the bit that we're really building out um, at the moment. And it's been much more, um, it's, it's much closer to product market fit than we've ever been before. <laughs> I mean, in your defense, I would say in hindsight, it's usually uh, all the good ideas usually look very simple. And people say, well, why didn't we come up with this uh, <laughs> a year ago or so? Uh, so it's it's quite often the case. And there's some cost, there's, you know, some sort of integrity that you would like to have in place, like what you mentioned about um, hiring a team and all of a sudden you don't want, want to get, get rid of it. You kind of want to have this um idea that the next feature is going to solve your your problem and you just keep going keep going and then two years later you need to face the the hard truths and maybe reconsider the direction so from my perspective it's not so much that founders don't know about those those mechanics of going um, pretty more early to to clients not building everything before they confirm things but from the psychological perspective it's makes all of the difference. Yeah, I would say that in the case of impact projects, it's especially tough, right? Because you really believe in the impact. It's like so obvious. If you only do that, it will change so much. Let's like, <laughs> let's do everything we can to like really push it. Everyone will understand at some point. Yeah. And then exactly. the tough reality, the, 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 they the won't same way understand. as it was with consumers here. I can imagine how brilliant the idea must have been at the very, very beginning. Yeah. I mean, we, we were yeah completely married to it until we weren't <laughs> right <laughs> okay but what worked uh, yeah. for you um, as it seems is finding the right in, in incentive sorry tough word uh, to finding right incentive for all the players uh, that you want to get involved with Mm, and I think it's really interesting to dig a little bit deeper into into this aspect because uh, generally fashion industry is tough. Everyone knows that one of the biggest polluters and one of the ones uh, one that it's very hard to change the sustainability aspect. So finding the right incentive, how does it work? Um, what, what's how this incentive for the supply chain versus brands and, and the cooperation between them? How does it work? 
So I think there's a few things that are happening um, and there's a lot of change happening so that incentives from the brand side or from the kind of company side, we also work with like workwear companies. Um, and so we consider those brands as well. There's also suppliers who they design products and have a supply chain underneath them and, and then deliver to brands. So, but we think of all of those as our, as our clients really. And for them, um, especially with a lot of regulation coming in to place in, in <clears throat> Europe, especially, but also in the US, there's, you know, some Canadian laws that come in. There's uh, some real incentive. I'd call it like the carrot and the stick, right? And, and there's always been a little bit of a carrot, but now there's a really big stick. And um, companies who are large have to report on um, material suppliers have they done proper due diligence? Is there is there uh, are there compliance procedures in place? Have they um, taken a number of actions? And can they show a compliance trail uh, in relation to you know ensuring that um, that people who work in their you know major material suppliers are able to work there? You know, something like the Uyghur laws that have come into place. You don't know most of the time where your cotton comes from, but now you actually have to find out because there are huge fines and penalties for companies um, who are making products that five, six steps down the line come from um, a source that is uh, effectively slave labor. Uh, and there's similar things with um, you know, child labor, for example, but you know, following many of the UN principles, these have been baked into uh, supply chain transparency um, regulations. But the most recent one, of course, is in Germany, where this has already been put into place and coming into force in the next year. But the European Union is putting like a whole raft of, I'd say, like a, a big package of um, regulations around this space before the product is made, so in the supply chain, but also afterwards. We sort of have less to do with the um, once your product is made, but in terms of waste, how do you um, discard of it? Uh, penalty, not penalties, but fees effectively for producing more that is then um, sent to kind of landfill, which I think is, is the right approach. If you want brands to change their behavior, there has to be some sort of regulatory stick. So from their perspective, they they have to do this. In terms of suppliers, there's there's a lot going on on there, I think. But suppliers, there's been a kind of rising tide of suppliers understanding that um, they need to do this for their biggest customers, and therefore, uh, if you see all the other suppliers reporting on these kind of metrics, then uh, in fact, you probably need to do it yourself. So. There's been a mind a shift, I think, in the mindset of many, many suppliers, especially the bigger ones, um, that this is now going to become a normal practice. Um, and a part of that, you know, you, you can do lots of things in terms of um, <clears throat> if firstly, if they if you had a good relationship with them and they supply to you regularly, you can bake some sort of commercial incentive, like maybe you'll do deals with them for the next two years instead of one next six months, right? Ensure that there's multi-year contracts. So building those relationships, but there's a, you have to give something in the process, which is, you know, provide us with these metrics, for example. Yeah, I'm really curious because it seems like thanks to those new regulations, um, the problem of collecting data 
is partly solved probably it's way easier uh, to get the data what about the verification part that was the the problem you mentioned in your phase two of, of exploring sure. the, the market how does uh, this new regulation or maybe some other um, aspects are influencing the verification how do we really make sure is it even possible to make sure that whatever the supplier is submitting is actually true So the honest answer of that is that there's no 100% way to ensure what the supplier is uh, submitting is true, but there are many, many checks that you can do along the way. Um, so the way in which like we, our product is uh, packaged, kind of the first bit is, is your regular reporting um, with your internal teams, but also with your supply chain. So if you're collecting regular data, whether it's on um let's say uh pay slips for example that you've paid your employees it, we're not looking at the number but we're just saying okay this is above board there's a digital trail that you could check in terms of compliance and actually it seems reasonable that with this much shipment you've got uh this many workers so it kind of adds credence to um the data that you're providing uh i think as our company grows, we'll have multiple data points from the same suppliers, right? And so that would also add some credence. But there's multiple ways to collect this. I think uh, in th there's been some conversation of like IoT devices. I think it depends on what it is, you know? We, we don't want to go down this like Orwellian nightmare where we're suddenly just putting in like lots of devices in the global south in factories where people are being followed 24-7 like while they're at work to ensure like I just don't think that works yeah. right it could solve the problem though <laughs> yeah but it would be hugely <laughs> ethically problematic I think yeah. for, for for most of us so I think there there is uh, and of course on top of that there are you know standards given processes like audits, for example, visiting um, suppliers, um, but having your, um, I think some of it is about passing it up. So in a supply chain, for example, for a single item of clothing, you might have like a dozen different steps, right? You've got, you start off with some fabric um, at a farm or some, some sort of like cotton, for example, then it's made into some sort of thread, it's processed, that thread is then, Uh, milled into some fabric there's some sort of finishing or dyeing or all sorts of other steps along the way and that's all before you even get this like fabric that then <clears throat> you cut and make and trim into something that looks like the product that you'll buy so there's so many steps along the way and so having multiple ways to check it in in that i think is also helpful because it is a very complicated chain um so part of what we're doing in the product is helping you connect um actually this supplier is connected to these other suppliers in these three different ways and so um we've got data from them in more than one uh from more than one avenue and that also adds credence to the to the metrics that you're collecting I think the other part, yeah. In a nutshell, if you start collecting data, um, your suppliers are forced to, well, provide some whatever they have. And then once you see um, like, well, like a sufficiently a large amount of data, then you can look for some patterns and maybe do some cross-checking like between different suppliers or so. But uh, the, just this first step is already bringing results. 
So I would say that many of the companies that we're speaking to at the moment have all, it's not something where they're going to start forcing their suppliers to do. They're already doing it. Um, <clears throat> it's just been largely voluntary. And so they've done it because they're large organizations. They have, you know, 500,000 suppliers, not, you know, 10. They've collected data on their material suppliers, which they share with their investors, with the public, um, with their own workforce. So that process has been going on for an, you know a number of years, I would say two or three years at least. I mean, my co-founder Ben worked at Burberry uh, some five years ago. And I mean, they were doing it uh, then. And I think they had a sustainability team of like 30 plus people globally, but still using pretty much like Excel spreadsheets and emails and you know, so-and-so had this on their desktop. So if so-and-so leaves, oh God, what are you going to do with that? And you, you, that's the, those are the kind of challenges that we're now solving. It's like, how do you make a really complicated system using archaic, uh, not, I wouldn't say Excel is archaic, but like out, tools that don't meet the needs of um, the reporting that you now have to do, of the collection that you have now have to do. I think the other bit is, trying to mitigate things before they happen. We currently, it's like you wait for the event. Uh, something bad happened with a supplier. Oh no, we have to like manage this. It has um, risk for your bottom line. It has risk for you <clears throat> meeting your uh, environmental or social um, targets that you, you've um, committed to, but it also has risk for brands and reputation. So you know, the, they become pretty commercial risks, but after the event isn't really good enough. So our sort of future gazing product is really around forecasting some of those risks, um, given what we know about what's happening in geopolitically, but also environmentally and also socially uh, in various countries and then mapping on your suppliers and then mapping on materiality. So you can be like, oh, okay, out of all of my 500 suppliers, here are the here are the top ten actually that we probably need to put some mitigation um, processes into place and maybe that looks like uh, a social program with uh, the managers or with women and you, I mean women make up eighty percent of the supply chain right so kind of empowerment programs for example to stop something bad from happening <laughs> I really wanted to say that uh, it, everything sounds so simple but actually it does not <laughs> it really sounds super complicated. But if we get back to, to to Bendy briefly and its impact, you said yourself like the you're aiming at uh, creating this future forecasting of the potential risks for the brands. Is there any direction you would love to take the impact that Bendy would create? Um, this forecasting is like probably next or maybe three steps uh, next. What's your holy grail of impact you want to create? Um, so I... <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> some of it is kind of the same as what we started with, right? We want to create a world where we know the provenance of the products that people are making and uh, and that people are buying. Uh, and so the kind of production and consumption become, um, yeah, much more transparent. But that, that final vision, there's so many steps to that. And I think... Um, we also like to see it beyond 
fashion beyond apparel, I think there's you know huge potential in other sectors where similarly very complex supply chains that are um, multifaceted in the global south uh, to to kind of unearth those to make it more transparent to bring <clears throat> bring this data out and make it available so that uh, you can first analyze what what happens so you know to, what measured what's measured um, can be impacted right so the first step is to measure and then you can put in change uh, and ultimately this idea of being able to know where things come from and what their impacts are I think is our ultimate goal yeah that sounds reasonable it's nice to <laughs> reasonably dream big, but impossible let's be reasonable <laughs> focus on the what's here and there measuring sounds like a good first start yeah I must say, I really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, your story of um, of finding product market fit was was really cool, and I think hearing those learnings directly from a founder has a much much stronger meaning to uh, to people than just listening to this story or just reading it somewhere. So thank you so much uh, for for doing so, even though I, I can imagine it wasn't the, the best news for you at the time. No, it's just painful and, and embarrassing, right? It's all good. <laughs> and also the the part about um, the, the impact in the supply chain and, and challenges around it. Um, for me, like one of the biggest learnings is around structuring a company like that, that wants to make their specific industry a bit more transparent. What are the forces that we should be looking for? Why big players might have more leverage uh, over their suppliers and all those dynamics. It sounds pretty uh, straightforward and, and easy, but as, as you mentioned, you need actually time to reach those conclusions and then steer your product into this direction. Um, thank you so much, Mandeep, for, for being with us today and, and yeah, telling your story. Thank you very much. Thank you both.